Hey, good morning, Sycamore View family. It's great to see all of you who are here in person and for everyone joining us virtually. Thank you for participating in our worship service this morning. I vividly remember 1986. I was walking into a kindergarten classroom, Miss Richardson to be exact, and I remember going up to Miss Richardson and saying, I bet there's a woman in Memphis, Tennessee who just started a job and one day we're going to be co-workers together. 35 years, and, and Kathy and Jim said it so well. Kathy brings so much joy to our place, and, and I know for me, when there's you know, a really rough day of, in life or just ministry, going into our main office and just walking into either Kathy's office or going to Donna, I just know they're going to put a smile on my face because of the joy that just comes out of them in, in everything they do. Kathy's also been so gracious to write two sermons a month for me, so I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> At least half of the sermons that have come over the last few years, uh, she is uh, just such a blessing to all of us. Uh, before, uh, if you want to be open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ezekiel, it may take you a moment to find it. Just Ezekiel chapter 1 is where I want to start off today here in just a few moments. But, and as you're finding that, I want to let you know something that's going to be happening over the next 21 days with our ministers and our elders. Uh, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, I, I created, with the help of a few other people, what I've just called a 21-day discipleship plunge. It's a 21-day discipleship effort. And this was kind of built around the whole 21-day cleansing, physical cleansing that you may see. And it's just a 21-day plunge into spiritual disciplines to redirect our hearts, to realign us with God, to set our hearts right. So our leaders of this church, elders and ministers, beginning tomorrow, we're starting a 21-day discipleship plunge. Over 21 days, we're committing to spiritual disciplines of silence, repentance, gratitude. We're reading the book of Mark together. We've committed to so many days of fasting over the next 21 days. Uh, we've committed to it. There are a couple of other spiritual disciplines in that. And this is just a three-week period of time for the leaders of this church to be reminded of what it's all about, to grow in our love for God and also knowing how much God loves us. So I want to invite this church to be praying over the leaders of this church for the next 21 days. For all the members of Sycamore View, you should know who your personal shepherd is. And I'm just asking you over the next 21 days to return the prayers that have been prayed over you by those shepherds and to even reach out to them to let you know how you are praying for them, for endurance, for perseverance. And we hope that this is a discipleship plunge that can spread beyond the next 21 days to other areas of the life of our church. Uh, and, and the reason I'm even placing this in front of you today is just for all of us to acknowledge together. That to be a leader in a church is not just about being a good man or a good woman or a nice person. To be a leader in a church is a calling of God. That we need godly men and godly women who are helping this church live into our future. So I invite you to be praying over us the next 21 days. We had planned on the month of August being a month called The Plunge with a lot of initiatives. And one thing we have asked of you and will continue to ask is just what is the next step in your faith? Uh, two weeks from now, we are still moving forward with the Baptism Sunday on August 29th. And if you have yet to be baptized into Christ, a step into the waters of baptism, we're inviting you to do that. Sometimes we need to circle a date on a calendar and work toward that date. And if there's any help I can be in your life, please reach out to me. I'm grateful for some of the conversations that we have already had with some people in this church in preparation for that. And I ask you to be praying over that Baptism Sunday. Uh, there are some things we've hit pause on, and we hope that we can come back to those down the road. And there are some things, and you'll hear about these in family news, a few things that we're still moving forward with when it, comes, when it comes to the plunge. We're just asking, what is that next step in your faith? What is that next step toward God? What is that next step to, to, to uh, connection? 
because even a pandemic can't stop us from going deeper in faith and for the church living into the mission and the vision that God has given us. In Ezekiel chapter 1, and we've, uh, the, what I want to do over the next four weeks is talk about our vision, which is awakening. And up on these two banners, and I know virtually it may be uh, difficult for you to see them, but here in our room we have two banners in the worship center. And on the banner is our vision, which is awakening, that we want to live as people who eyes, whose eyes are open, whose hearts are open to, to be awake to what God is doing in the world. And then under that is Ezekiel chapter 47, which was a vision given to Ezekiel, and a vision that I think explains really well what it means to be the church. And in that vision, there is a small drip. There is a little trickle that begins in the center of the temple. And it ends up turning into a rushing river that blesses the whole world. Now some of you know what it's like to have a small drip or a small little uh, trickle that begins in your house, maybe from a hot water heater, that then ended up causing a lot of damage. A show of hands if this has ever happened to you in your home. All right, this is not a river in Ezekiel 47, a rushing river that destroys everything. It's a river that blesses the entire world. And it starts in the sanctuary, it starts in the holy place, and from there it becomes something that's ankle deep, and then knee deep, and then waist deep, and then it's this rushing river that blesses the whole world. There's fruit everywhere. And I know for, I think all of us in here, we want to see restoration and goodness spread all over the world. And Ezekiel 47 is a good reminder that the focus isn't on the fruit. It's not on the restoration, hoping that maybe we find God there. The focus is on God, and when the focus is on God, we believe restoration will come from there. In Ezekiel chapter 1, it's an introduction into this book, and here's what you read. And I just want to highlight a couple of things in the first three verses. Ezekiel starts out by saying, in my 30th year, he tells you, I'm 30 years old when these visions of God began to come to me. In my 30th year, and in that he also says, while I was among the exiles. So Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. Ezekiel now is in exile. He and these other people, and the entire book of Ezekiel is written to exiles in exile. This whole book took place over about a 19-year period of time. So I don't want you to think Ezekiel took a writing break, and then within two months he developed what you have as the book of Ezekiel. This was almost a two-decade period of time where these visions of God and sermons of God are coming to Ezekiel. He's in exile. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. He doesn't describe himself as a prophet, though he is a prophet. He described himself as a priest and that the hand of God was on him, the function of a priest was to take the hand of a person and the hand of God and to connect them. The function of a priest was to connect people to the divine. The priest was a mediator. So Ezekiel saw himself, and some people argue that the book of Ezekiel is a book about worship. It's a book about a prophet who is a priest who's trying to connect a bunch of people who are away from home to God, to the divine. Now, for you, for us, I don't know if we would describe ourselves as exiles. I don't know if you have ever thought of yourself as an exile, but exiles were people who were away from home. There was a cloud of uncertainty over them. They didn't know what the future held. There was a cloud of chaos. And it's not that they were in prison or that they were in shackles. They were away from home, which also meant for them they were away from the temple, like the place where they would go to offer sacrifices and to connect with God. It wasn't there anymore. Now that's how Ezekiel begins, by letting you know Ezekiel's a priest and they're exiles in the midst of exiles. The very last statement in the book of Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel chapter 49, here's what it says. The very last sentence you read is this, and the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. 
So this vision builds throughout the book of Ezekiel, where at the very end, it's this story, this promise of restoration that is coming to all the people of God. And as restoration comes to the people of God, it's not just the temple where God's going to dwell. It's a city that's going to be known for the Lord is there. And this is awesome. The restoration's not just going to restore things to what they once were. It's going to be that and beyond. So all of Ezekiel is in between what it meant for them to become exiles to experience the full restoration of God where a whole city experiences the fullness of that. Now, for them in that time, you're exiles and you hear the promise of one day down the road there's going to be a city and when people look at that city and talk about the city, what they're going to say is the Lord is there. And if you're living in exile with a cloud of uncertainty over you, not knowing what the future holds, that could be a great, it could like provide hope for you. Like, okay, a time is coming soon when the city's going to be known as a place where the Lord is there. Or it could cause you to think, okay, there is a promise that one day the Lord is there, but is the Lord here? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you believe in a future promise of God, but you're not really sure what God's doing in the present? Like, I believe the Lord's going to be there, but I'm not really sure what God's doing here. Because sometimes in the here, it feels like what may be the absence of God, or the hiding face of God, or not really sure where God is in the midst of life. And just so one person in the room today who may be experiencing what feels like the absence of God, that they don't feel like they're all alone, if you've ever been in that place in your life, will you just raise your hand? You're just not really sure what God's doing right now. And for them, it's like the Lord is there, but is, is God really here? When Truett turned 12 a couple of years ago, one thing my parents, that they do with all the grandkids is when they turn 12, they take them on a trip. And Truett and his cousin, who's just a year older than him, my parents took them on a trip together. They went up to the Northeast, they went to Boston, Philly, they went to D.C., they went to New York City. In New York City, they went up uh, the Empire State Building, which you pay $4,000 a person and you get on an elevator. I think it's $20 a pop, you know, you go get on an elevator and, and the way they told the story was on the elevator, it was this whole experience preparing you for what it was going to be like on the top. So there was, there was music playing and there were stories being told and at the very top you knew that Jay-Z and Alicia Keys were up there ready to sing Empire State of Mind for you. Like this whole experience of what it was going to be like when you get to the top, the elevator doors open and then there are glass windows and you can see this mesmerizing view of all of New York City and take all the photos you want. And the way Truett tells the story is we got to the top, the elevator doors open and all there was were clouds that they couldn't see anything. And you don't get your money back. But all it was was clouds. And there are times when we're looking for God and we're experiencing certain seasons of life and we're not really sure how long they're going to last and it's like we're looking for hope and all you see are clouds keeping you from seeing all the beauty that is out there. So I want to walk you through, just for a few moments, in the book of Ezekiel, how the glory of the Lord, which is a phrase that shows up over and over in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord... And some people talk about the book of Ezekiel as a book where it's all about, it's all about the glory of the Lord. 
And let me just point out a few things to you. In chapter 1 of Ezekiel, in verse 28, Ezekiel has an experience with the glory of the Lord. And when Ezekiel experiences the glory of the Lord, it says it leaves him flat on his face. He thinks he's going to die. Which a lot of times in the Bible, when people experience the glory of God, this is what happened. They were left on their face or on their knees. There was some kind of physical response to experiencing the glory of God. And for the people of God, the glory of God was everything. That the glory of God had descended and had made its home in Jerusalem, in the temple. This was so special for them. This provided protection. It provided hope. So in Ezekiel 1, he encounters the glory of God. The next thing that happens in the book of Ezekiel, and it's one of the saddest moments. To me, it's one of the saddest moments, not just in the book of Ezekiel, maybe in the entire Bible. Because so much of the story of God in the book of Exodus and with the tabernacle that held the presence of God that was thought to hold the presence of God in chapter 9 through 11 in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God, it leaves, leaves the city, leaves the temple. And if you read chapter 9 through 11, the glory of God leaves in stages. So the first stage is the glory of God kind of just steps outside of the temple. And then stage two, the glory of God goes all the way to the east gate. And stage three, the glory of God goes all the way up to the Mount of Olives, which was a place that could have seen, been seen, uh, that the glory of God could have looked over all of Jerusalem. But basically chapter 9 through 11 is the glory of God saying, I can't take anymore what's going on. I can't take any more of what people have made of the temple and of worship and of their lives. So God was removing his presence. Now this is a vision Ezekiel had. So it's not that his physical eye is seeing this, but in the, this is what Ezekiel experiences, is that the glory of God is removed from Jerusalem. And then later on you catch in Ezekiel chapter 39, looking back on so many of these events and so many of these visions, it talks about how God hid his face from the people there. It was like God could not take the idolatry anymore, like there, were generational, there was generational sin that was going on. There were times when the temple was locked up. There were times when people didn't even know where the word of God was. And all this idolatry drove God to a point where God was like, I can't take it anymore. I'm stepping out of this. I'm even hiding my face from what is going on there. And then about halfway through Ezekiel, there's a shift. And there's some really good things and some restoration that begins to happen. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, one thing God says is, Hey, I'm coming to do a new thing, and I need you to know that when I do this new thing, this isn't because of I'm trying to repair the uh, reputation of your name. It's because God's repairing the reputation of God's name. So what God says in Ezekiel 36, 22 is, I want to make this abundantly clear. I'm doing this for my name. Now, this isn't because there is this narcissism in God where God doesn't really care about people or God doesn't care about their, their name, God only cares about God's name. I think this is God saying when the name of God is on the lips of people and in the hearts of people, when the name of God is in the center place of the people of God, everything else is made right. Everything's made right. And a few verses later, what you have is this promise of God that when God comes to restore, God's going to give a new heart and God's going to give a new spirit. This is a promise of God that keeps showing up throughout all of Scripture is that God's going to come to broken, rebellious people and God's going to invite them again into a relationship and God's going to give a new heart and a new spirit. And right after that's where you have Ezekiel chapter 37, which is this vision of a valley of dry bones. In Ezekiel chapter 43, there's this shift in the book where hope comes back to Jerusalem. 
In Ezekiel 43 is when the glory of God returns to the temple. The glory of God is reestablished in the temple. And from that you have a vision in Ezekiel 47 of this vision of something really small that starts in the temple and it ends up blessing the entire world. And then in Ezekiel 48 you have this promise, this future hope, that when people look at this city, what they're going to say is the Lord is there. Now I want you to look at the screen right now. Because this is just kind of a flow of the book of Ezekiel of 49 chapters kind of broken down into a few pieces. Now in that are moments, long moments, almost 20 chapters of it where it feels like what you were reading are all the reasons why God has left the temple. There's the absence of God. There's God who just can't take it anymore. There's idolatry in people. But as you look at that, I think in a way what you see on the screen, if you're able to see this right now, I think in a way, this is, just, this is describing like the journey of humanity, like human nature. This is almost our journey, just summed up. Like we are born as image bearers of God, where God is creating something new inside of a womb, inside of a mother that is born into the world. And at some point, we go through stages either of rebellion or some kind of disconnection from God where we no longer can just live life based on the faith of our parents or those who have gone before us, but it has to become our own. We have to realize that we are disconnected from God. And then there's this God who comes and a God who reestablishes connection with us, a God who wants to claim us as his very own, to give us his own name, a God who wants to live inside of his people, inside of the church, a God who uh, reestablishes a God who lives inside, a God who restores the world, a God who wants to claim both for people and the church and for a world God wants to redeem that God is there. Can you see how this somewhat sums up what our experience is like? Now part of this and part of Ezekiel is what feels like the absence of God. That God would hide his face. And I want to speak into this just for a moment because... I don't know if you ever feel like God's playing some divine game of hide-and-seek. But as I've been res wrestling with and, and writing this sermon for today, like there are just a few questions that keep coming back to me. If you go to this next slide, a few questions I wrestle with sometimes, not just in my own life, but how I'm helping to lead people in faith. Like, does God hide from people? What do we do with the absence of God? Like, how do we deal with it? And in Ezekiel, God removes his presence from Jerusalem in a vision, does God remove his presence today? And as you look at those questions, and maybe you've wrestled with any of one of those questions or all three of them before, or maybe you've never really asked those in your own life, but for those who have, how do you reconcile that and have a conversation with this next slide that has the statement of Jesus at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, which says, I am with you always. Because sometimes you read the Old Testament and people can think in the Old Testament God acted one way and then Jesus came and Jesus acted another way and maybe God was kind of flaky and moody in the Old Testament and then Jesus showed the side that was really loyal and consistent. And for me, the best way to read the Bible is Jesus shows us exactly who God is like through the entire Bible. Where Jesus embodies someone who is fully loving and Jesus also embodies someone who is full of truth. Where Jesus doesn't just love people in their sin, he calls them out of their sin. May I make a suggestion when it comes to how we think sometimes about the absence and presence of God in our lives? Let me just make a suggestion that sometimes when you go through periods of your life of, in sin or in rebellion or even in apathy or complacency, 
sometimes what's really happening is it's that it's not that God has removed his presence from us, it's that we have removed our presence from God. It's that we have created the disconnection. In Romans chapter 1, there's a phrase that shows up three different times. And this phrase is that God gave them over. Like there was a certain way of life that people had adopted as their own, and God gave them over to it. In Romans 1, it doesn't say God gave up on people. It says God gave them over to it. And I think what happened in Ezekiel, and maybe sometimes what happens today, is we want to go about our lives, and maybe we enter into a church on a Sunday, and we do some churchy things, and then we just go about our own lives, and and we live from a place of rebellion or disconnection from God. And sometimes what God does is just say, okay, if this is the life you want to live, let's just try this out for a while. Go for it. This is what happens in the story of the prodigal son. Like, just go for it. And sometimes what the loving God does is let people experience emptiness so that they will reach for the loving, gracious God who is always inviting people back into relationship. Which is something you see throughout the entire Bible. Even when all the people of God rebelled over and over again, God kept inviting people back into relationship. I think sometimes we may read a book like Ezekiel and we may think, we want what Ezekiel had. Visions from God, revelation. It seemed that there were moments when Ezekiel was hearing directly from God. There may not have been a lot of fruit in his ministry, but there were these visions, these clear visions of restoration that were coming to Ezekiel. But I think if Ezekiel was here today in the year 2021, Ezekiel would say, don't be jealous of me, because I'm jealous of you. I think Ezekiel would say, all the visions I received, they were great. Visions of restoration, and they were wonderful. But you live on the other side, like you know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, you don't need a priest like Ezekiel to help take your hand and to take God's hand and to make some divine connection. That what Jesus has done is Jesus has stepped in and has given you release from your sin, and not just release, has given you access to God. You don't have to go through Josh. You don't have to go through an elder. You don't have to go through a priest or a bishop or a pastor. That God has given you undeniable eternal access to the divine. Ezekiel would say, do you know what you have? Release from sin forever and access to God for eternity. I want to give you three things. Three responses to the glory of God. Then when we see the glory of God, when we pray about the glory of God... Three responses based on the book of Ezekiel. Response number one is reverence. Whenever you see the glory of God show up in Scripture, there is reverence and there is awe. The glory of God doesn't leave people with smiles on their faces in the presence of God. So when you pray prayers like, show me your glory, be prepared that if God does choose to show you his glory that it may not just leave you sitting in a chair, it may leave you flat on your face. So let me invite you as you have prayers for, to see or experience God's glory in your life, that I just want to invite your physical posture in prayer, and this can be in the privacy of your home, that you do something with your body in prayer showing reverence and awe. It aligns both with Scripture and it aligns with how you will worship and pray for eternity. Secondly, a centerpiece that the glory of God throughout the book of Ezekiel wants to be the center of everything. 
And there needs to be both an acknowledgement and a shift in many of our lives that you are not called to be the center of it all where God and everything else works around you. God is the center of it all and we function around God. The glory of God is a centerpiece, the center of everything. And the third thing is yes. That the glory of God invites a daily yes to come from the people of God. So when is the last time like you just in prayer spoke a yes to God about your commitment we say yes to God in baptism. One practice in the life of this church is that we take communion every week. We take the bread, we take the cup, and in that we're reminded that Jesus said, he said yes to us. And every week we are re-upping, we are saying yes to Jesus. So here in just a moment, one of our youth ministers, Logan, he did something with our leaders, the elders and ministers, Monday night in a meeting where he just walked us through kind of these seven principles of saying yes to God in baptism, and they also work with saying yes to God in communion. And Logan's going to come in just a moment and walk us through this. And before Logan comes, I just want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's, let's pray just for a moment. For God, in this prayer, I just want to acknowledge and thank you that your glory is not something you hide from us. It's something you want for us. And as we pray for you to show us your glory... Prepare our hearts and our minds of what may come crashing down from heaven. And God, uh, in this day, I don't know what's going on in our lives or how hard it is for some people just to say yes to you, that God, I re-up today. But I pray you give us the courage to live out that yes. And even over the next few minutes that we will wrestle with, what does a yes to God mean for us in our lives? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.